KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM in the Portland area and all over the world at KBOO.FM. Tune in to Cubby Cushy, Cubby Cush, Tuesday nights on KBOO. Two hours of global bass with an emphasis on South Asia and the South Asian diaspora and an even more special emphasis on the Punjabi diaspora. Hosted every Tuesday, 10 to midnight by the Incredible Kid. This ain't world music, it's birth of a new world music. KBU Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBU in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBU Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBU, meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The Development and Events Committee meets on the fourth Monday of the month at 4.30 p.m. Please visit our website at KBU. FM to verify if a meeting is being held. KPFK Pacifica Radio. This is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com. On our program today, we'll explore educational institutions and materials. First, Deborah Menkart, Executive Director of Teaching for Change, will join us to discuss a new campaign against a couple of kids' books published by Scholastic about Donald Trump. Menkart will explain why many Americans are up in arms about the books that paint a rosy picture of the most dangerous president in memory. Then author Ellen Moore will discuss her book called Grateful Nation Student Veterans and the Rise of the Military-Friendly Campus. Stay tuned.
KPFK Pacifica Radio, this is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica Radio stations and affiliates nationwide. The school textbook publishing giant Scholastic is under fire for its children's books about President Donald Trump. Scholastic publishes a large number of books that are in wide use throughout American schools and libraries. And while the corporation has gotten into trouble before, this new scandal has really irked many Americans over the rosy picture that the kids' books paint about Trump. The books in question are both written by the same author, Joanne Mattern, one for older kids as part of the A True Book series, the other one for younger kids as part of the Rookie Biography series. While the books were published last year, they have received renewed scrutiny recently after a social media backlash. And the organization Teaching for Change has just reviewed them. Many are using the hashtag Step Up Scholastic to call the company out on its portrayal of a dangerous president as an utterly normal. My guest is Deborah Menkart, Executive Director of che- Teaching for Change. Welcome to the program, Deborah. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So first, before we get to what is so problematic about these books, how widespread is Scholastic? For anybody who has kids, you probably have several of their books in your kid's library, right? Yes, in fact, it's considered to be the most trusted name in children's books. There's probably not an elementary school teacher out there who's not been involved uh, in a book fair, a Scholastic book fair. So they, it's it's not uh, an easy choice to say, I'm going to give up Scholastic and look for other titles. They're, they're pervasive. So this uh, is basically a normal thing for them to publish a book about a new president. When a new president uh, comes into office, they publish, they sort of uh, add to their series and, uh, and, and people, you know, and, and the schools will provide them for kids. Kids can read about their new president. Um, so why is it problematic that they did this for Donald Trump? He is, after all, the 45th president of the U.S., Yes, and, and they, I should point out they haven't done them for all the presidents, but mm. yes, it is important for schools, for elementary schools, particularly in their school library, to have a children's book about the president. These are actually normally considered library books. They're not as widely available in, in uh, individual classrooms. Uh, what's problematic for us about this one is that it's about his campaign, and it gives uh, young children the appearance that he won based on his business prowess and his TV stardom. There is not uh, one reference to the comments he made and the promises he made during his campaign, which uh, you know wrecked fear in the hearts of many, and and contributed largely to to his victory. Mm-hmm. So it claims to be nonfiction, and yet it's far from that. Well, interestingly enough, the book uh, the for slightly older kids, uh, part of the A True Book series, uh, one of the first pages in that book is emblazoned with the title, Find the Truth. Everything you're about to read is true, except for one of the sentences on this page. And then it you know, has one of these things. So it's interesting um, when you're talking about truth. Now, the books um, do portray Trump as this um, maverick, if you will, and say that he became, they, they almost sort of romanticized the fact that he went from a businessman to uh, running for office. Um, and, and is that problematic? You know, he, he certainly did run a business, but to do the books sort of erroneously point out that his businesses were very successful, therefore he might make a good president? Uh, they give the impression, one, that they, they glorify his businesses and his business prowess without any reference to the, the employees, the, the, the land that was destroyed to, to create those businesses or the, you know, the, the shady business deals that uh, have been part of the, the backbone of his, of his career. But more importantly, that's not why he got elected. I think if, we, if you look at the polls and the people who supported him, they wouldn't have supported any business leader. They supported him because of the comments and the promises he made. And those are absent from the book. So young children, as young as first and second grade, are very aware of what those promises were and what those threats were in many cases to their own lives. And yet those are absent from the book, which uh, could cause real confusion for, for children as to why, why their own reality and their concerns are, are left out. 
I want to read from page 35 of this book um, that uh, this is the, a true book um, about uh, Donald Trump. Uh, it said, many people were shocked at the idea of Trump as president. He had no political experience. He had never held a public office or taken part in political activities. For this reason, some people thought he was not qualified to be president. Others loved the idea of an outsider coming in to shake up the way the government was run. Some supporters felt ignored or neglected by the government. They believed Trump would look out for them. Um, so this legitimizes the, or seems to at least legitimize this idea that Trump came in to give voice to millions of voiceless Americans. Yes, although it does not say anything about who the people are that mm. felt voice or any issue when you look through this book that's for the older children, which Scholastic actually came out with a statement, you know, there's been a campaign, there's been more than 800 letters written of concern and complaint from teachers and parents, librarians all over the country. Uh, and Scholastic came out with a statement saying that, uh, you know, controversial issues, I could actually uh, look at their exact language, but they said that, they actually even said most teachers and librarians we serve would agree that discussing controversial aspects of any public figure's life isn't appropriate for our youngest readers. Well reader their youngest readers in this case are supposed to be first and second grade who as we know are constantly asking why and are very well aware of what's going on in the world but then scholastic goes on to claim that actually the book for the older readers that they do argue are are ready to deal with those tougher topics that there the book is more honest and 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 more informative mm -hmm. but we would argue that it's not that the statement that you just read um, really could be written about every president's candidacy throughout U.S. history. There was always some people who supported the president and some who didn't, some who felt represented by the government and some who didn't. The entire book uh, features people of color on one page, and that one page has them protesting and surrounded by police. There is the word racism is not used once. Uh, so again, this it's a surreal reality where this person got elected uh, on an explicitly racist platform, and yet the word racism or or who he was demeaning throughout his candidacy is not referenced. Well, they one. use the words discriminate and prejudicial. There's one page and one page alone in the A True Book um, version of this uh, book about Trump uh, entitled Campaign Statements, where at the very bottom of that page, you see an image of some of the protests uh, and this is what that page says. Trump made several statements during his campaign that were concerning to some people. For example, he promised to build a wall between the United States and Mexico to keep out illegal immigrants. It's kind of sad that it uses a term uh, illegal immigrants. Opponents argued that the cost and terrain made the uh, building the wall challenging. Others worried that Trump would discriminate against Muslims in his fight against terrorism. Some of Trump's critics felt he did not speak out against prejudicial people and groups strongly enough. That is it, Deborah. That was the extent of them tackling these controver this controversies, quote unquote controversies for older children. Interestingly enough, I found that there was literally no mention whatsoever about Trump's denigrating comments about women. This is very clear and became an issue before the election. Nothing at all. Right, nothing at all about women, uh, nothing about his uh, you know, extremely denigrating comments about Mexican-Americans, African-Americans, Muslims, you know, other than the one reference, but even that's not quoting him that you just read. Uh, uh, people who are disabled, POWs. I mean, it's just- Right, he mocked uh, a disabled reporter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. He, he questioned the right of the judge to, to as Mexican-American to hear his case, uh, you know, and then we know he said much worse things about uh, Mexican-American or Mexican immigrants, uh, none of that. And so it's as if, Right. Some people, some people were troubled, not not the fact that his election led to some of the largest demonstrations this country has seen. Hmm. Uh, among the things that uh, they discuss in this book, that the author discusses in this book uh, earlier in the book about Trump's business 
uh, uh, record in New York uh, is a page about Woman Rink. Uh, by 1980, the beloved Woman ice skating rink in New York City Central Park was falling apart. It was closed, etc. Trump uh, offered to rebuild Woman at no cost to the city. This rink reopened less than six months later. Trump got a lot of good publicity, and New Yorkers once again had a Central Park skating rink to enjoy. This page makes it sound like Trump swooped in and did something wonderful for the people of New York. Makes literally no mention at all about Trump's role in his, in his racist attacks against the Central Park Five, right? I, I agree. Yeah, that we actually pointed out, we published a review of, as you mentioned, of both books. And with that one, we say to mention the, the, the skating rink and not mention the fact that when he had no political elected role, that he took it upon himself to take out ads in the four major New York papers against calling really for the death penalty against uh, the Central Park Five, who were, as we all know later, uh, proved to be innocent, assumed to be innocent by many at the time, and were teenagers. He was calling for the death penalty of children. Uh, And that, and, you know, there's so many, uh, and then he was responsible for the whole birther movement. So, so many examples. The accusation that uh, President Obama was not born in the United States. That's right. Trump continued to harp on that even during his campaign. Right. And so we we know that all of those racist claims contributed to through, you know, for decades, let alone during the, the his candidacy, contributed to his popularity and support. And so to insinuate that he was elected because of his uh, you know, even if we considered him a good businessman, which I think that also should be called into question given his practices, this really celebrates vulture capitalism of that it doesn't matter what you do to become rich, it's, it's, it's okay and look, you get to be president. But that isn't why he got elected. We can think of a lot of wealthy uh, you know, millionaires at this time that if they ran for election would not be elected based on that. This mm-hmm. was, it was his campaign statements that he made over it and quite proudly. I mean, what they're hiding, what Scholastic is hiding, is are statements that, that, that Trump had no qualms about making and continues to defend. And so they've really uh, created this campaign package for him. There's even the, um, the book for older children has a, a line, you know, the true book. It says, uh, big, large font, Trump has never smoked, drunk alcohol, or taken drugs. Well, for one thing, we don't, how do they know? Um, and we we thing, know, by the way, that he pretty much forged his own doctor's report about his health. <laughs> right, right. But so it's it's a concern, not just in, in this book about Trump, but it's a concern that a major, I mean, we're talking about a major, uh, as you said, or, you know, as you talked about earlier, the, the widespread uh, pervasiveness of Scholastic throughout our schools, that they're normalizing, they're normalizing hate, and they're causing young people to think that if someone is that hateful, if they're elected, then we need to ignore all that and just revere and respect them. Um, a number of, we've been attacked on Fox and Friends and Braybart and by Fox News. Um, they've said that we don't want a, a book by Trump in the schools and that's not what we're arguing. We're not arguing for censorship. We're arguing that young people deserve the truth and they deserve the truth in age appropriate ways. We would not want the first and second grade book to actually repeat most of what we'd, he says. Um, it would not be age-appropriate language, um, but they, it does need to be communicated that his platform was based on saying very demeaning things mm. about all the people that we just listed. The book aimed at younger kids, uh, part of the Rookie Biography series, um, is also deeply, deeply problematic. And they're written by the same person, Joanne Matter, and so it's not surprising that they basically follow the same theme. Um, and, and I'll just sort of read the summary of Donald Trump from the first page, which which reflects um, what these books portray. Donald Trump is a famous entrepreneur. He's also a television personality. In 2015, Trump surprised many people when he decided to run for president. In November 2016, he won the election. Donald Trump became the 45th president of the United States. That's basically it, right? He was a businessman. He was a reality TV star. He made the surprise decision to run for president. He won. End of story. Walk away. Um, But this book is kind of um, bizarre in that there's a poem about Donald Trump in the uh, book for, you know, very, very little children. Um, And uh, I just want to read this poem as well. I'm trying to 
find it here in our, here it is, a poem about Donald Trump. His buildings reached into the sky, his businesses just grew and grew. Then, Don, then Trump became our president. People wanted something new. I thought this was the most vomit-worthy section of both these books, Deborah. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that poem really summarizes the tone um, and the level of information available in both books. Uh, so no, we would, uh, in fact, we've been getting a lot of the letters that have been written to Scholastic include suggestions for alternatives for that poem that are ah. quite um, <laughs> witty. And, and I think it's a good assignment for young people because what we're hearing from a lot of teachers of young children is that they're really concerned that if their students came across this book, that their lives that have already been threatened would then also be invalidated um, and that the children would feel, um, you know, even more concerned that their own reality was not being, and truth as they know it, would not, is not being reflected in this supposedly nonfiction book. Um, and I should point out that this is a concern we have not just about these, these two books about Trump. These don't come out of, um, these are not anomalies that uh, textbooks, the media, children's books for way too many years have uh, you know, created a, 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 a rosy picture, have, have elevated political leaders regardless of their policies and practices. And that's, um, we coordinate with Rethinking Schools something called the Zen Education Project. And there our focus is to teach outside the textbook because really we need to look outside the textbook for the resources, the, the people's history, the true stories. Mm -hmm. um, the stories that reflect the lives of our children and help them make informed decisions uh, moving forward. We're also part of a collaborative um, called the See What We See Network where uh, teachers, librarians, early childhood educators look at children's literature um, and fight for not just diversity in children's literature but for also for, for truth and honesty um, so that there are books that reflect the the real experiences of the majority of people in, in the world. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about the hashtag Step Up Scholastic campaign. Uh, I understand there's also a petition uh, to Scholastic. What are some of the ways if people have been outraged by what we've been discussing and want to get in touch with Scholastic, what are some of the ways they can take action? Yeah, well, if, if it's okay, I'll give a little bit of background on that. Um, this is actually not the first time that there's been a campaign uh, to hold Scholastic accountable. And I should also point out Scholastic's not the only publisher that, that uh, needs to rethink how they, they produce children's books. But this one, because of how uh, widely they're used in the schools and how egregious this particular pair of books are, we're focusing on. But uh, it was actually about four, year, four or five years ago that Scholastic had a partnership with the American Coal Foundation and the American Coal Foundation was coal, paying for the American Coal Foundation. Coal. Wow. Yes. Okay. So it's, fossil fuel company, uh, or fossil rather, fuel. Uh, industry group. Yeah. Yes, because they um, Scholastic has a great reputation, and it sells that reputation. It's a brand that they sell, and so that through that partnership, they were distributing a curriculum to fourth grade classrooms across the country that talked about clean coal and did not make any attempt to be balanced to say, but on the other hand, there are these environmental concerns. It was a commercial for the coal company, just like these children's books are a commercial for Trump. And, and not just Trump, but his administration and his policies. So thankfully, uh, it was actually in this case, it was Rethinking Schools got a hold of that. They partnered with the Center for Commercial Free Childhood and a lot of environmental groups. A story was released in the New York Times and Scholastic quickly had to publish a statement that they were withdrawing from that partnership. Um, uh, fast forward a couple of years, two years ago, uh, they released a children's book called A Birthday Cake for George Washington, all about how the um, Hercules, who was a real person who was enslaved to the Washington family, um, this was a children's picture book, and it said that his biggest problem that he had uh, was that he had run out of sugar to build to bake George Washington's cake. Um, and so the whole story becomes how he comes up with a substitute for sugar. He finds honey, and so he's so happy to serve his master. Um, and the, the back page is a picture of him arm in arm with George, Hercules and George, um, living happily ever after. Wow. Um, of course, the reality is, is that uh, you know, Hercules um, managed to escape from, from the Washingtons, had to leave his daughter behind. I mean, it's a it's a tragic story, as many, you know, as, as all stories of people who are enslaved are, but that was left out of the book. And uh, again, we 
organized with other groups, a number of other groups uh, organized a campaign. Um, and Scholastic for four days defended that book very heavily and argued that it was uh, humanizing people who are enslaved. Uh, there, that is when there was a colleague of ours, uh, Leslie Mack with the National Ferguson Response Network came up with a hashtag slavery with a smile and the media picked up on it, the progressive media, and finally Scholastic had to um, recall the book. Um, they managed to put a twist on it. They had learned from the Cole story not you know, to get their own foot forward, and they recalled the book, but they immediately put out a press release claiming that it was because of their own high standards and totally ignored the whole organizing campaign by librarians, by early childhood teachers, um, and erase that because they have an incredible communications uh, sort of operation. And in fact, the author came out later and referred to us as an online lynch mob. Wow. Uh, but, but thankfully they did recall the book. Um, and it was after that that a number of the people involved in that campaign said that it's not enough for them to recall a book. We do need to demand accountability for them to produce books that do represent the diversity and the, and the real experiences of children in schools. Um, and looking at the catalog that they have for these um, school fairs and that they give out to kids every month, the catalogs looked as white as the Oscars did a few years ago. Hmm. So we started that campaign then, Step Up Scholastic, and children, in that case it was largely children across the country, would look at the catalogs and write letters and ask why there were not children that looked like them featured in um, their stories. So that campaign um, has gone on for about the last year and a half and has garnered hundreds of letters. Um, but it's, uh, and so, but they have not, um, they've issued, actually they have issued as a result. Now they have some diverse catalogs. Um, so they've partnered with, uh, I think we need diverse books and they do have a couple of diverse catalogs. And the, these sorts of campaigns work. I mean, yes. <laughs> when ultimately yep. Scholastic relies on the acceptance of parents and teachers and children and uh, ordinary Americans um, of their material. And if we demand uh, higher standards, they have to deliver or risk uh, ruining their reputation or losing their business. Um, I mean, just, just uh, I sort of missed reading this other part. I want to just go back to what started our whole conversation, which is these um, biographies of Trump for kids by Scholastic, um, the rookie biography for first and second graders um, described the election, you know, that caused such mass collective anxiety in the country. This is how Scholastic described the election. On November 8th, 2016, Americans voted for president. The race was close, but Trump won. Many people were happy. They looked forward to a brand new government they hoped for a stronger country. It continues a couple of pages later. Donald Trump inspired his supporters to try something new. He promised them a better future. Millions of Americans are counting on him to help improve their lives. And that's it. I mean, then if we read the news every single day since his election and since he's since he was inaugurated, um, <laughs> there's been you know such mass. Um, anger, anxiety, despair, depression, people's lives on the line, people literally having their lives being risked and violence being fomented, none of which is reflected or even a hint of it reflected in this. And so this book basically presenting this absolutely normal seeming president. And you couldn't say, you couldn't retort to it and say, well, um, you, you wouldn't want a book highlighting all the controversies about Barack Obama. Of course, Barack Obama and probably none of the presidents before him ever had these sorts of this level of controversy behind them, right? Well, uh, actually, it is a problem that all the books about presidents, you know, going back to when you look at the books about, uh, you know, our, the first 12 presidents, uh, actually not all first 12, but 12 of our U.S. presidents have owned and sold people, have been involved in human trafficking. That should be in children's books. That right. shouldn't be Absolutely. Hidden. Absolutely. But it's through the, the rookie book about uh, Barack Obama's campaign, because that's been some of what the right wing mm. uh, response has been. Well, you didn't critique that one. Well, actually, the book about his campaign talks about him being a community organizer, talk, talks about his um, skills when he was in law school. Uh, you know, that's true. And those were things that are legitimate to get elected on. Um, if it was a children's book about his presidency and it did not mention his responsibility in drone 
attacks, his high level of deportations, that would be a problem to us too, and we would I call see. it out. Right. Um, but I think that this book, as you said, and, and it's also a problem when they put, as uh, the section you just read, that much power in the hands of any one person to, to deliver, to make this a better country or better world. It really robs the role of quote unquote ordinary people of a democracy that we're all responsible for making this a better hmm. country. So um, it puts it as if, you know, he's either a king that we can revere or if we don't agree with this book, we can disagree and not revere him. But it's putting all power in his hands, which it should not, you know, we, we should have been electing a president, not a king. Um, Interestingly enough, on the same page as the poem about Donald Trump is a set of three pieces of advice, uh, presumably to children, but really perhaps this should be aimed at Donald Trump. You can be president, it says, learn how government works, listen to other people and learn to share ideas for how to solve problems, say what you believe in and work to make your dreams come true. I suppose he is uh, fulfilling that last part. <laughs> Say what you believe in and work to make your dreams come true, but but not the first two. <laughs> yeah, and make his own dreams and his own family dreams, you know, wealthy dreams. It's um, I think the other issue that uh, you know Scholastic has uh, in their statement said that we it was not fair to critique the book because it was about his campaign, not his presidency. But our critique was focused on the campaign mm -hmm. and. We know that there were enough things said during his campaign that it led to the largest protests we've seen uh, because it was very clear what direction the presidency was going to take. So I think it was absolutely fair to critique the book about the campaign. Those, those promises uh, you know, or threats were, um, are, were, were how he got elected. And then I think, as you said, you know, it's also as if not that he's, people are actually finding that he's delivering. I mean, even when we see the protests now, of teachers in in many uh, states that elected Trump, that it's uh, you know that that promise it was pretty predictable that it that he wouldn't be able to deliver um, that it wasn't a promise. Deborah, where can people find out more about your organization, Teaching for Change, and uh, the review of the Scholastic books? Yeah. So our primary website is teachingforchange.org. We also have a social justice books website where we have not just the critique but also reviews and recommendations and book lists for many books that we do recommend that people uh, share, order, read, get from your local library, from an independent bookstore, and then many other reviews from the See What We See network. So that's at sojustbooks.org, sojustbooks.org. Uh, but you can find all of that at Teaching for Change. And we are still collecting letters, as you said earlier, letters do have an impact. Scholastic does worry about its its the, the marketability of its brand, of its reputation. And so if people continue to write letters, uh, we might get an even better response than the one that they issued last week, which was uh, a weak defense uh, and really insulting to teachers, uh, librarians, um, in its argument that young children cannot deal with controversial issues. That's teachingforchange.org. Deborah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for, for focusing on the story. My guest has been Deborah Menkart, Executive Director of Teaching for Change. We've been discussing Scholastic's books for kids about Donald Trump's campaign and how he won his presidency. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Also find us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, and Vimeo.
from KPFK Pacifica Radio. This is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this show on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica Radio stations and affiliates nationwide. Military recruiters often tout the accessibility of a college education as one of the biggest reasons why a young person might want to enroll in the Army or Navy. But how many veterans of the U.S. military actually take advantage of the GI Bill's educational perk and do so successfully? In a new book, author Ellen Moore explores the experiences of college students who are military vets of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and how they transition to civilian campus life. She also examines the way in which vets on campus impact anti-war activism and how programs intended to support veterans often overlap with a blanket support of militarism, leading to a suppression of debate. Ellen Moore is a fellow at the Slow Science Institute and a visiting scholar at the Institute for the Study of Societal Issues at University of California. She works as a social worker for recent immigrants at La Clinica de la Raza in Oakland, California. And she joins me to discuss her new book, Grateful Nation, Student Veterans and the Rise of the Military-Friendly Campus. Welcome to the program, Ellen. Thank you. So how did you conduct the research for this book? I'm assuming since you are on campus, you, you t have taught courses at uh, in San Francisco uh, on college campuses that you have interacted with uh, returning vets, vets attempting to resume civilian life and, and take advantage of that educational perk that I mentioned. Yes, I have. I, I started this research though to find out I was teaching as a graduate student on campuses and I started the research to find out what the situation was for veterans. So I started it as actually my dissertation research. And I, the way I did it was I visited many campuses, but I mostly concentrated on two campuses. This is an ethnographic project. So I studied vets' experience at one urban public university, a sort of a, a top tier university, and then at a rural community college in Central California. And let's talk about what it was that you found. First of all, um, how what what is the sort of approach that veterans tend to take at colleges in terms of what they want to achieve? Um, not all veterans, you know, have lost limbs or or faced very serious combat. I'm assuming there's a big variety of experiences. I'm assuming some may be experiencing some severe PTSD, and others not so much. Yes, I think that's a really good point, that, that the experience of veterans is, is extremely diverse, I mean, very varied. And in fact, people join the military for different reasons. I was looking at a subset of the people that joined the military, and these were people that really were interested in a college education and basically signed up to go to war to go to college. I mean, that's what that was ultimately the deal. That's not why they did it. They didn't want to go to war, but they did want to go to college for the most part. So these so, were people who joined the military with the intention of wanting to return and go to college uh, because it might not have been accessible for them unless they went in the, into the military in the first place? Yes, it wasn't. I didn't exclude others that joined for other reasons, but that was, by and large, a lot of people were interested in going to college at least, and many didn't have the resources to do it. But for whatever the varied reasons that they joined, once they were in college, what I found interesting was that we were all told that colleges um, are, that veterans are having a difficult time in college because college, civilian colleges have an anti-military bias, which was something that I didn't, didn't see. I hadn't seen in my experience prior, and I didn't see throughout the course of my research, but I thought it was curious that that sort of idea kept coming up, that veterans might be having a hard time in college because civilians on college campuses were in effect driving them away. It sort of so reminds me of that myth that returning Vietnam veterans to the United States were spat upon by anti-war activists and were vilified even after they had sacrificed so much. And you're saying that this, uh, this might also be a myth that returning uh, Afghanistan and Iraq war vets being uh, shunned by non-military college students is a bit of a myth. Exactly. No, it is exactly a myth. And what I found is that it's a myth with the foundational myth being the Vietnam vets myth. I mean, mm. it was, it's built on this idea that we as a collective uh, civilian population mistreated the Vietnam veterans on campuses. And so we as collective civilians today 
owe it to the Afghanistan and Iraq war veterans to treat them ex exceptionally well and to honor them and to venerate their service on campuses. Mm -hmm. So it, it not only is a similar myth, but it's a myth based on the, the myth of mm -hmm. Vietnam. So the um, there are two separate issues, and you take them both on because they're often conflated on college campuses. One is that veterans who return from the U.S. military, they're ordinary people who are often in uh, circumstances that are not um, ideal. They you know, might be arising from low-income families or communities. They've come back and they need support and they may or may not, you know, they may have a variety of opinions on the wars they served in. So most Americans agree that it's important for us to support veterans. Then there's the issue of glorifying war and glorifying the reasons these students or these young people were sent to war in the first place and celebrating militarism. Um, how do college campuses often conflate the two to the detriment of both vets and non-veteran students? That's a great question, and I think that that the way that they're conflated, it's it's very subtle. I mean, there's there, it starts out with the very heartfelt, the heartfelt um, assumption that many civilians have. I would say, if not most, many civilians have that people have been sent to war and they deserve to feel safe and they deserve to feel welcomed back. So I think that that is a pretty widespread opinion, but to take that idea to couple it with, to suture it to a, an idea or a story that campuses are already anti-military or have a bias creates the need, it creates a, a manufactured problem of the anti-military campus so that, that extra effort has to be put into ensuring that campuses, civilian campuses are military friendly, which is actually a status that different universities and colleges vie for, is the military friendly status. It, it's actually a thing <laughs> that is a designation that, that that colleges can apply for and be, hmm. have bestowed on them. So with this designation of a military-friendly campus, um, everybody's trying to sort of compete to who can be the, as to who can be the most welcoming to veterans. And But the problem with that is not that veterans get a good education. That's There's no problem in that. The problem, as I see it, is that when support for veterans becomes conflated with, with a silence about the wars. For example, I read in some literature, some what's called the best practice literature about treating veterans on campus, treating them well. Part of that literature says that admonishes um, professors and faculty members not to talk about the wars in their classes because somebody might say something offensive to veterans, meaning that if somebody says something against U.S. policy or the current wars, that that might offend some veterans better in class. So veterans are being treated as symbols of U.S. militarism. Therefore, if you criticize U.S. militarism, you're criticizing the veterans as actual people. But uh, in practical terms, is that really true? How have veterans reacted to any anti-war um, activism they might see on campus or anti-war or just even uh, questioning of militarism in classes? Well, absolutely. In fact, many veterans arrive on college campuses specifically wanting to question these their experience, wanting to understand their experience in war, which, by the way, many, many veterans have extremely conflicted feelings about mm. what they did. In sure. So the assumption that all veterans positively identify with their military experience is a false assumption. And it's it's detrimental to veterans who don't fit into that narrative. And so they come, many come and decide to study things like Middle Eastern studies because they want to engage in these debates. They want to understand their experience. They want to make sense out of their experience. And so many told me that they came to college campuses and they were expecting discussions. And they, they basically said, what's going on here? Why is nobody talking about the wars? Why is nobody mentioning this? And so there's this sort of gift of the magi idea that you're supposed to help help the um, veterans by not talking about the wars. And the, the veterans are saying, "Why is nobody talking about the wars? I want to I want to find out why." You so know, it's a sort of patronizing attitude that uh, college campuses have been told they need to adopt in order to make veterans feel welcoming. But what it has done is stifle debate. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so, which then in turn alienates veterans even more so. Right, doesn't actually help the very people that need the help. 
Veterans have often been on the forefront of anti-war activism on and off campus. Not all veterans are anti-war, obviously. Not all are supportive of war either. But how have uh, veterans found their anti-war voices on campus? Is that something that, you know, because campuses are supposed to be, college campuses are supposed to be places where you engage in healthy debate and question things. Absolutely. I mean, Sonali, that was one of the, the curious things that I found. I didn't go into this looking for anti-war activism on campuses, but in the course of my research, I noticed, you know, an absence of that. And I think my, my theory is that in part that's because people are so cautious to, to do what they think they should do, which is not talk about the wars so as to prevent uh, potential offense to veterans. Um, so I, it was curious to me that there, that college campuses today are not centers for activism against the wars. In fact, it's largely, most campuses that I saw were largely silent on this issue. What I found was that veterans that wanted to um, speak up against and be organized against the wars generally found spaces off campus. Wow. Which, wow. Is, which is a different, that's different from previous times. And so Iraq Veterans Against the War, which is now what's known as About Face, did not have chapters in the in the campuses that I was at. They, it seems like, and I can't speak for all of their chapters, but it did seem like off-campus organizing was much more powerful mm -hmm. than on-campus. Now, what about military recruitment on campus and how the U.S. military itself um, has pr a presence on many campuses? How does that impact uh, campus life for students in general, but also vets? Well, again, if, if somebody is if somebody's being recruited on campus, on a college campus, that generally means they're being recruited for ROTC, you know, mm -hmm. Reserve Officer Training Corps. Um, the people that are sort of on the enlist at the lowest levels or at the beginning levels generally tend to not be enlisted through college. Right, they're in high school. <laughs> exactly. That's where, the, that's where the recruitment goes. And college is held out as the carrot in that, exactly. in that negotiation that, that you can't if you do this. Um, so on campuses, it, it varies. I mean, there's some campuses that are deeply aligned and overtly aligned with military projects. You know, certainly in California, there's, there's private schools that are deeply embedded in the military project. And I would say that are obvious, but throughout the, the public education system and the private education system, military research funding, military um, military priorities are embedded in not obvious ways. So I, I think my research, looking at common sense and militarization of common sense is more in the non-obvious spaces. There's certainly funding from the, the Department of Defense, DARPA funding for um, technologies around militaries and fighting wars and surveillance. And um, from drone technology to to artificial limb technology, there's, there's robotics, um, facial recognition technology, it's, it's all very much a part of the current uh, contemporary university. Right. And what I was interested in is how even universities that are known for historic opposition to previous wars and the Vietnam War in particular, um, how they become sort of more than benign welcoming, more, more a sort of self-silencing uh, the self-silencing mechanisms that happen in the names of, of not not offending veterans. And, and and do you think that this has been a direct result of these efforts um, by forces outside campuses to force campuses to conform to this idea of um, supporting veterans, a mis clearly misguided idea of supporting veterans? I do, I do. I think I think that it's not an accident. I think it's not an accident, and we can look back to the first, what's called the first Gulf War. The, you know, the what the military calls Operation Desert Storm, where there was in in the first Bush administration, where there was definitely this idea that we can't repeat, we can't, we we have to, um, we can't repeat the problems that we had in Vietnam. So we have to preemptively. Um, have this narrative of supporting our military and supporting our veterans, especially mm -hmm. on college campuses. So I think college campuses were targeted at that time to sort of formulate this discourse to make sure that 
that there was not campus activism. And so now we've uh, seen that these uh, methods have proven largely successful. Well, if killing debate about wars on campus isn't actually helping the people it's supposed to help, which is veterans, what does help them? Um, I imagine for veterans returning to transition to civilian life, um, it is difficult in general, but to start a an educational career on a college campus um, so different from where they might have spent the last several years of their life might be even more complicated. What does, what do they find support in? Okay, I think that's a great question. I think some things that absolutely help are listening to them. I mean, that's it seems very basic, but we know that just listening to people's experience and finding out what, what it is that they're looking for helps. Now, the veteran population, although they, um, many veterans, war veterans, have had specific uh specific experiences that can affect life afterwards, traumatic experiences. The training that recruits go through is very regimented and very specific. You know, people are trained to fight in wars and people are trained to follow orders in a particular way. So the kind of military training I found really transferred over into these vets on, on college campuses, that if you are trained specifically not to question authority, not to question uh, conventional wisdom, if you're trained to react reflexively rather than think about things a lot before you take an action, these kind of lessons are very much embodied in the veterans. And it's it's boot camp, anybody will tell you the boot camp is a very kind of traumatizing experience or the lessons of boot camp endure, can endure. So there was a disconnection when people came back to to civilian life and sort of reacted in sort of military inculcated ways in situations where the opposite was expected. So that was one thing that I did notice. But in general, um, people that come to university that maybe don't come from a college prep background, and many of the recruits in the, the current wars are not coming from, you know, they didn't choose necessarily to join the military from an array of college prep options. So, so there is that, that what we have found that people that are entering into a university experience, especially a sort of a research university experience, need support. And this goes for any any student that is coming from a non-college prep uh, background. This uh, comes from first-generation students. Right. This comes from immigrant students. It comes from anybody that comes from a working-class background and wasn't prepared from birth to go to university. So we know what helps. We know that mentoring helps. We know that tutoring helps. We know that... You know, educational research is is robust in this. How do you help people that have right? Not and then it's not it's it's not that complicated. It sounds like it's not complicated at all. Are there <laughs> are there specific issues facing female vets who return to campuses? Um, we know that uh, female vets have their own struggles in the military. And we know that women have their own struggles on campus. Uh, sexual violence is hugely prevalent in the military, as it is on campuses. Are uh, Do women face any extra challenges when they try, try to transition from the military to campuses? Well, in general, with, with the, the women that I spoke with, coming to a, a university, civilian university campus or college campus was in many ways freeing because the sort of constraints that they felt as women in the military as transgressors mm. just for being female. I mean, females, women are transgressors in a military um, milieu because it is designed for men. There is right. a you know, what I call military misogyny that is imbued in everything um, in from military training to wars. So in many ways, it's a freeing experience. What I did find is that the, that one of the, the factors that happens for vets coming to colleges is that there tends to be um, veterans clubs, which can be a good thing. So veterans join together on colleges and they support each other to get through this. However, most of the veterans clubs are sort of built on this sort of military identity that tends to be male dominated. So the, the vets clubs were tended to be male dominated. And so many of the female vets or the women vets sort of decided, you know, later for that, that was not going to help them. So I think that the challenges were less with and interfacing with, with civilian college cultures 
and we're more with the sort of recreated military um, structures in the mil- in the veterans clubs on campuses. Are there racial and immigration related issues as well that uh, vets struggle with? Uh, we know that our military is dis- has disproportionate representation from youth of color. Uh, there are kids with immigrant backgrounds that go into the military, you know, come from immigrant families. Um, so do they also face uh, sort of other struggles? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, what we find is in urban areas, particularly, it tends to be more youth of color that, that join. In the rural areas, uh, in the, specifically the rural southern areas of the United States, the recruitment tends to be more white working class or, or poor. But in the urban areas, absolutely. And my experience was that, that uh, veterans of color definitely, um, you know, in some ways they were sort of caught between two worlds because coming to the university, there was a lot more recognition and, and well, I, I won't say there's less racism. I won't say that. I will mm-hmm. say that, that it has different, different manifestations, but there was more room to talk about. There was more room for critique there was more room to critique the established norms. And so in that sense, it, it was it was freeing for many of the vets of color. At the same time, uh, if one has a, a military identity that for, for good or bad or whatever the consequence of that is, people do have identities that are formed that, that they feel certain, certain affinities or certain bonds with their colleagues, comrades from the military. So they're still caught in that, the, the nexus of sort of racialized discourses from all sides. Mm-hmm. But what, what I found was that people in general, people of color, vets of color, were welcome welcoming the, the opportunity to talk about these things, to talk about the contradictions, rather than either front, you know, play along with them or, or just go along with the dominant discourse of the military, which is a whiteness discourse. It right male whiteness discourse. And finally, Ellen, in our current political atmosphere where we have been told we mustn't question the military and mustn't question militarism because it's a massive slap in the face to all veterans, you know, with Donald Trump saying that um, the the mere act of uh, athletes kneeling during the national anthem means you've insulted every veteran who ever served in war. With that atmosphere, how important is it for non-veterans and veterans on college campuses to form bonds, to talk to one another, to discuss what the experiences of these vets might be uh, in wars and how wars might be seen by non-vets at home. I think that's one of the most important things. That is one of the the most important and most accessible strategies that we can use. We can talk to each other. We can ask questions. It was interesting that I went to these trainings for faculty about how to teach veterans as if there has to be some kind of secret code to be able to relate to veterans, <laughs> as as if they aren't human beings and students. Right. But anyway, so I would go to these these conferences about how to teach veterans, and we would get a list of questions not to ask veterans, a list of questions to avoid asking veterans. Wow! And some of the some of the questions on the the list were patently absurd and conveyed an ideological valence. Like one of the questions was, "Are you crazy like like the Vietnam vets?" Now I guarantee you, no person will ask a veteran that question, but was put on the list for a reason. I mean, it performs ideological work, right? It performed this work of making faculty against veterans, I mean, yeah. seemingly against veterans. So that was on the list. But one of the questions on the list was, what do you think of the wars? Now, that um, is very troubling. That tells faculty that one should not ask veterans about their opinions of the wars, that this might somehow damage the veterans. And I found the opposite with veterans. Not all veterans wanted to talk about the wars, but many did. And they had opinions about it. And many felt that their experience was erased on college campuses. Like, this was the most formative experience. They had some of the, the worst experiences, and also, honestly, some of their best experiences in terms of camaraderie and feeling their own strength. I mean, it was a very mixed bag, but it was formative for these, these students. Mm-hmm. And the fact that nobody, it apparently nobody wanted to talk about it. And I don't think that nobody wants to talk about it. I think people are afraid to talk about it because they've been told not to talk about it. And I think to break down that silence, to break down that wall, is in everybody's interest, certainly in the interest of the veterans, certainly. 
Well, uh, Ellen, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Give out a website where people can find out more about your work. That's right. It's ellen-more.com. We'll post a link to that from our site. Thanks so much. Thank you, Sonali. Have Ellen Moore is a fellow at the Slow Science Institute, visiting scholar at the Institute for the Study of Societal Issues at the University of California. She works as a social worker for recent immigrants. We've been discussing her new book, Grateful Nation, Student Veterans and the Rise of the Military-Friendly Campus. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Also find out more about our program on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, and Vimeo. Rising Up with Sonali is hosted, written, and executive produced by Sonali Kohatkar. Anna Bus is the producer, technical director, and web and social media supervisor. Our theme music is by Grammy award-winning band, Gets Up. Like us on Facebook.com slash RU with Sonali. That's the letters RU with Sonali. And follow us on Twitter.com slash RU with Sonali. Our website is risingupwithsonali.com where you can find all our programs archived and where you can get direct access to all our video and audio files. You're listening to KBOO Portland. KBOO Community Radio is hiring a program director to manage our programming department. This full-time position requires proven experience in program directing, radio audio production, management, and supervisory skills with volunteers with an emphasis